Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome to the Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's serious moments, stories of oddness, of weirdness of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everybody. This is Terry from Texas. Bobby Dunbar was an American boy whose disappearance at the age of four, an apparent return was widely reported in newspapers across the United States in 1912 and 1913. Robert Clarence Bobby Dunbar was the first son born to Lessie and Percy Dunbar of Opelousas, Louisiana. He was born in April of 1908. In August of 1912, the Dunbars took a fishing trip to nearby Swayze Lake in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. On August 23rd, while on that trip, Bobby Dunbar disappeared. After an eight-month search, authorities located William Cantwell Walters, who worked as an itinerant handyman, specializing in the tuning and repairing of pianos and organs. Walters had been traveling through Mississippi with the boy who appeared to match the description of Bobby Dunbar. Walters claimed that the boy was actually Charles Bruce Anderson, generally referred to as Bruce, the son of a woman who worked for his family. He said that the boy's mother was named Julia Anderson and that she had willingly granted him custody. Julia Anderson would later confirm this. Nonetheless, Walters was arrested and authorities sent for the Dunbars to come to Mississippi and attempt to identify the boy. Newspaper accounts differ with regard to the initial reaction between the boy and Lessie Dunbar. While one, almost certainly fictional, account indicated that the boy immediately shouted, Mother! upon seeing her and the two then embraced, another said only that the boy cried and quoted Lessie Dunbar as saying, she was unsure whether he was her son. Other newspaper accounts quote both the Dunbars as initially stating doubts as to the boy's identity. There were similar contradictions in newspaper accounts of the boy's first sighting of the Dunbar's younger son, Alonzo, with one newspaper claiming, and again, most likely steeped in fiction, that the boy recognized Alonzo immediately called him by name and kissed him, with another saying the boy showed no sign of recognizing Alonzo. 
The next day, after bathing the boy, Lessie Dunbar said she positively identified his moles and scars and was then certain that he was her son. The boy returned to Opelousas with the Dunbars to a parade with much celebrating the homecoming. Shortly thereafter, Julia Anderson of North Carolina arrived to support Walter's contention that the boy was, in fact, her son Bruce. Anderson was unmarried and worked as a field hand for Walter's family. She said that she'd allow Walter's to take her son only for what was supposed to be a two-day trip to visit one of Walter's relatives. She further asserted that she had not consented for Walter's to take her son for more than a few days. According to newspaper accounts, Anderson was presented with five different boys who were of the same approximate age as her son, including the boy who had been claimed by the Dunbars. When the boy in question was presented, he reportedly gave no indication that he recognized her. She asked whether he was the boy recovered, but was not given an answer and finally declared that she was unsure. Upon seeing the boy again the next day, when she was allowed to undress him, she indicated a stronger certainty that the boy was indeed her son Bruce. Word had already spread about her failure to positively identify him on the first attempt. This, combined with the fact that newspapers questioned her moral character in having had three children, the other two deceased by that point, out of wedlock, led to Anderson's claims being dismissed. With no money to sustain a long court battle, Anderson returned home to North Carolina. She later returned to Louisiana for Walter's kidnapping trial to attest to his innocence and pushed for the court to determine that the boy was her son. At the trial, she became acquainted with the residents of the town of Poplarville, Mississippi, many of whom had also come to proclaim Walter's innocence. William Walters and the boy spent quite a lot of time in Poplarville during their travels and the community there had come to know them well, with a number of them asserting that they had seen Walters with the boy prior to the disappearance of Bobby Dunbar. Despite their testimony, the court reached the determination that the boy was in fact Bobby Dunbar. Walters was convicted of kidnapping while the boy remained in the custody of the Dunbar family and lived out the remainder of his years as Bobby Dunbar. After the trial, the people of Poplarville welcomed Anderson and she began a new life there, eventually marrying and having seven children. According to her descendants, she became a devout Christian, helped found a church, and served as nurse and midwife to the small community. Although her children indicated that her life was a happy one after settling in Poplarville, they said that she nonetheless spoke often of her lost son and that their family always regarded him as having been kidnapped by the Dunbars. In 2008, one of Anderson's sons, Hollis, recounted the story for This American Life that in 1944, Bobby Dunbar, Bruce Anderson, visited him at his place of business where they talked. Hollis's sister, Jules, had recounted a similar experience wherein a man, who she believes to have been Dunbar, came to the service station where she worked and talked to her for an extended period. The Dunbar family also has a similar story as told by Bobby Dunbar's son, Gerald. 
The family was returning home from a trip and passed through Poplarville when Bobby Dunbar said, those are the people they came to pick me up from. The Anderson family then had a brief visit with Dunbar. After Walters had served two years of his prison term for kidnapping, his attorney was successful in appealing the conviction and Walters was granted the right to a new trial. Citing the excessive cost of the first trial, prosecutors in Opelousas declined to try him again and instead released him. After his release from custody, Walters resumed an itinerant lifestyle. He died on April 7, 1945 and was buried in Pueblo, Colorado beside his wife. The grandchildren of Walter's brother reported that during their childhood, he typically visited their grandfather a few times per year and that during these visits, Walter always maintained his innocence regarding the kidnapping charge. The boy raised his Bobby Dunbar, married, had four children of his own, and died in 1966. Years after Bobby Dunbar's death, one of his granddaughters, Margaret Dunbar Cutright, began her own investigation of the events, pouring through newspaper accounts, interviewing the children of Julia Anderson, and examining the notes and evidence presented by Walter's defense attorney for his kidnapping trial and appeal. Although Cutright had initially hoped to prove that her grandfather was a Dunbar, her research ultimately led her to doubt her own belief. In 2004, after an Associated Press reporter approached the family about the story, Bob Dunbar Jr. consented to undergo DNA tests to resolve the issue. The results showed that Dunbar Jr. was not related by blood to his supposed cousin, the son of Alonzo Dunbar, who was the younger brother of Bobby. Since the DNA testing is conclusive, the fate of the real Bobby Dunbar remains unknown. In March 2008, Public Radio International's This American Life featured The Ghost of Bobby Dunbar, a radio documentary about the investigation of the case by Margaret Dunbar Cutright. She expressed her own opinion that the real Bobby Dunbar most likely fell into Swayze Lake during the fishing trip and was eaten by an alligator. She revealed that the results of her investigation had brought joy to Julia Anderson's family as vindication of her claims, as well as to William Walter's family as an exoneration of the kidnapping accusation against him. She also said that her findings had sown discord within her own family, as the majority of her grandfather's children and grandchildren considered themselves to be members of the Dunbar family, cherished their existing familial relationships, and were resentful of Cutright, both for having delved into the matter and for having helped renew the topic in terms of public attention. The Tamam Shud case, also known as the mystery of the Somerton Man, is an unsolved case of an unidentified man found dead at 6.30 a.m. December 1, 1948, on the Somerton Park Beach, just south of Adelaide, South Australia. The case is named after the Persian phrase tamam should, meaning ended or finished, which was printed on a scrap of paper found months later in the fob or the watch pocket of the man's trousers. The scrap had been torn from the final page of a copy of The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, 
Tamam was misspelled as Taman in many early reports, and this error has often been repeated, leading to confusion about the name in the media. Following a public appeal by police, the book from which the page had been torn was located. On the inside back cover, detectives were able to read indentations from handwriting, a local telephone number, another unidentified number, and a text that resembled an encrypted message. The text has not been deciphered or interpreted in any way that satisfies authorities on the case. The case has been considered, since the early stages of the police investigation, one of Australia's most profound mysteries. There has been intense speculation ever since regarding the identity of the victim, the cause of his death, and the events leading up to it. Public interest in the case remains significant for several reasons. The death occurred at a time of heightened international tensions following the beginning of the Cold War, the apparent involvement of a secret code, the possible use of an undetectable poison, and the inability of authorities to identify the dead man. In addition to intense public interest in Australia during the late 40s and early 50s, the Tamam Shud case also attracted international attention. South Australian police consulted their counterparts overseas and distributed information about the dead man in an effort to identify him. International circulation of a photograph of the man and details of his fingerprints yielded no positive identification. For example, in the United States, the FBI was unable to match the dead man's fingerprints with prints taken from files of domestic criminals. Scotland Yard in England was also asked to assist with the case but could not offer any insights. In recent years, new evidence has emerged, including an old identification card possibly identifying the Somerton man as one H.C. Reynolds and an ongoing DNA analysis of hair roots found on the plaster bust of the body. An autopsy was conducted and the pathologist estimated the time of death at around 2 a.m. on December 1st. On January 14th of 1949, staff at the Adelaide Railway Station discovered a brown suitcase with its label removed, which had been checked into the station cloakroom after 11 a.m. on November 30th of 1948. It was believed that the suitcase was owned by the man found on the beach. In the case were a red checked dressing gown, red felt pair of slippers, four pairs of underpants, pajamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a short, sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, a small square of of zinc thought to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors, and a stenciling brush, as used by third officers on merchant ships for stenciling cargo. Also in the suitcase was a thread card of Barber brand orange waxed thread of an unusual type not available in Australia. It was the same as that used to repair the lining of a pocket of the trousers the dead man was wearing. All identification marks on the clothes had been removed, but police found the name T. Keene on a tie, Keene on a laundry bag, and Keene without the last E on a singlet, along with three dry cleaning marks. 
Police believe that whoever removed the clothing tags either overlooked these three items or purposely left the Keen tags on the clothes, knowing Keen was not the dead man's name. With wartime rationing still in force, clothing was difficult to acquire at that time. Although it was very common practice to use name tags, it was also common when buying secondhand clothing to remove the tags of the previous owner or owners. What was unusual was that there were no spare socks found in the case and no correspondence, although the police found pencils and unused stationery. There have been persistent speculation that the dead man was a spy, and that was due to the circumstances and the historical context of his death. At least two sites relatively close to Adelaide were of interest to spies, the Radium Hill Uranium Mine and the Woomera Test Range, an Anglo-Australian military research facility. By early February 1949, there had been eight different positive identifications of the body including two Darwin men who thought the body was a friend of theirs, and others who thought it was a missing station worker, a worker on a steamship, or a Swedish man. Detectives from the state of Victoria initially believed the man was from there because of the similarity of the laundry marks to those used by several dry-cleaning firms in Melbourne. Following publication of the man's photograph in Victoria, 28 people claimed to know his identity, Victoria detectives disproved all the claims and said that other investigations indicated it was unlikely that he was a Victorian. A seaman by the name of Tommy Reed from the SS Cycle in port at the time was thought to be the dead man, but after some of his shipmates viewed the body at the morgue, they stated categorically that that corpse was not Tommy Reed. By November of 1953, police announced they had recently received the 251st solution to the identity of the body from members of the public who claimed to have met or known him. But they said that the only clue of any value remained in the clothing the man wore. In 2011, an Adelaide woman contacted biological anthropologist Massiege Hinnenberg about an identification card of an H.C. Reynolds that she had found in her father's possessions. The card, a document issued in the United States to foreign seamen during World War I, was given to Henneberg in October 2011 for comparison of the ID photograph to that of the Somerton man. While Henneberg found anatomical similarities in features such as the nose, lips, and eyes, he believed they were not as reliable as the close similarity of the ear. The ear shapes shared by both men were a very good match, although Henneberg also found what he called a unique identifier, a mole on the cheek that was the same shape and in the same position in both photographs. Together with the similarity of the ear characteristics, this mole in a forensic case would allow me to make a rare statement positively identifying the Somerton man. The ID card numbered 58757 was issued in the United States on February 28, 1918 to H.C. Reynolds, giving his nationality as British and age as 18. Searches conducted by the U.S. National Archives, the U.K. National Archives, and the Australian War Memorial Research Center have failed to find any records 
relating to H.C. Reynolds. The South Australian Police Major Crime Branch, who still have the case listed as open, will investigate the new information. Some independent researchers believe the ID card belonged to one Horace Charles Reynolds, a Tasmanian man who died in 1953 and therefore could not have been the Somerton man. Inability to identify the body caused much frustration, as did the constant misidentifications. As one journalist wrote in June of 1949, alluding to the line in the Rubaiyat, the Somerton man seems to have made certain that the glass would be empty, save for speculation. An editorial called the case one of Australia's most profound mysteries and noted that if he died by poison so rare and obscure it could not be identified by toxicology experts, then surely the culprit's advanced knowledge of toxic substances pointed to something more serious than a mere domestic poisoning. Roman Senator Pliny the Younger who died in A.D. 113, told a ghost tale so haunting that it survives to this day. Perhaps it was the very first haunted house story. There was in Athens a large and roomy house, but which had a bad name, so that no one could live there. In the dead of the night, a noise resembling the clashing of iron was frequently heard, which, if you listened more attentively, sounded like the rattling of chains, disturbances that led to the appearance of a spectral form of an old man of extremely emaciated and squalid appearance, with a long beard and disheveled hair rattling the chains on his feet and hands. Needless to say, the house was abandoned and had to be rented out for a cheap price, when a philosopher named Athenodorus heard the story, he reportedly rented the house and confronted the ghost. The ghost appeared and rattled around before vanishing. Athenodorus calmly marked the spot where the ghost vanished and in the morning ordered that the spot be dug up. This was accordingly done and the skeleton of a man in chains was found there for the body, having lain a considerable time in the ground, was putrefied and moldered away from the chains. After being given a proper burial, the ghost departed and the house was haunted no more, according to Pliny's tale. In 1949, a boy from Cottage City, Maryland, who was referred to as a Roland Doe, which was obviously not his real name, underwent an exorcism performed by a group of Roman Catholic priests the accounts suggest. There are conflicting reports as to Roland's alleged powers. Some stories claim that Roland had supernatural strength, could speak in ancient languages that the boy had no knowledge of, and could apparently move or levitate the mattress he was lying on. Since 1949, investigators have called into question many of these claims providing evidence to suggest that Roland was a psychologically troubled boy who hated to attend school and that his abilities were far from supernatural. In any event, the exorcism took place. 
The events inspired a 1971 novel called The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty, which, in turn, inspired the infamous 1973 movie. Another reality-inspired movie was The Entity, which I spoke of in a previous episode. Yet another reported to be from real life is the movie The Amityville Horror. That film and that story has come under much criticism for fakery, but I have some reservations. Can you think of any more stories based on a real story that scared you? I'd like to hear from you about it. Well, that's the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Be with me next week as we come back with another story or another group of stories for Terry's Mysterious Moments. I want to remind you that on Mondays, Aaron Hunter brings you Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast, which is listener stories that Aaron tells, mostly ghost stories. On Tuesdays, we have Aaron Frail with Aaron's Horror Show where he reviews horror movies, different books, uh, things that he's written. Wednesdays, it's me, Terry's Mysterious Moments, with me, Terry from Texas, where we cover just about anything you can think of. We also have video productions on the first Friday of the month from The Witching Hour and from Unexplained Cases. Also remember that you can go to your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android. You can go to your app store, look for the RPA app. It's a black square with a blue eye right in the middle of it. You can't miss it. And you can download that app, install it into the device you listen to the programs on. And that way you will not have to go looking for the programs. They'll be right there. Do that. It'll be a lot easier for you to get to the stories. That's about it. I hope everybody has a good week. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye.